Welcome to Canada's least listened to sports broadcast. This is the SBN Sports Roundtable. Your opponents for today's battle, fighting out of the red corner, from Pink Village, Ontario, Canada, it's the one, the only, the infamous, Dwayne Rollins! His opponent, the Lavelle Comet, Kevin Laramie! Special guest referee for today, Benoît Lelièvre of Hardwood Radio. And welcome to the SPN Roundtable, week two. Today, Kevin Laramie, he joins me as always. Kevin, we have a special guest from Hardwood Radio, our basketball show on the on the network. I've been told as the Anglo here that I cannot pronounce Ben's name. So, Kevin, introduce our guest for me. Uh, it's my pleasure to bring Benoit Lelièvre, the co-host of Hardwood Radio with myself. Benoit, how you doing today? Hey, hey guys. Very good. You? Awesome. I, I am well as well. Uh, both Ben and Kevin are in my show. What's it? <laughs> Once again, the Toronto guys surrounded by all these Montreal fellas. I don't know how we're going to end up uh, getting through this without me getting through. I'm going to have to bring a Toronto guest on next. Yep. I, I think next week it's everybody going to from Toronto. All right. It's going to be the TO guest. And the rest of the country, we'll get to you someday. Don't worry. All right. Uh, ben is a basketball guy, as I said, Hardwood Radio. So we thought we'd bring him on to have a bit of a basketball conversation today to lean on his knowledge because there's a few – really big talking points that sort of transcend sport that's going on right now. Um, I think we'll start with Kobe Bryant, uh, a legend that has retired this week, announced his retirement, I should say, for the end of the year. Uh, Kobe's a bit of a divisive character at times. Not a lot of people like his personality. We're not here to talk about some of the stuff in the past, though. Let's look at him just as a player, Ben. And I want to start with just sort of ranking him in where he fits in the all-time greats. Now, as I said to you off air, I think it's a little silly to start getting into generational, cross-generational comparisons, but we can compare him to his contemporaries. So let me start with this. Is Kobe Bryant the best player of this century? This is a question that is a source of a lot of debates. In my opinion, is the second best player next to uh, Tim Duncan. Because uh, they have they have the same number of championships, but uh, Tim Duncan, along with Greg Popovich and everybody in San Antonio, really built their legacy from scratch. They didn't they never had big time free agents. They never had uh, the appeal of a big market. So they a lot more rode on Tim Duncan's shoulders than Kobe's. But like he's up there. Like it's it's a debate for sure. Yeah, I'm glad you said Tim Duncan. The, 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 I have three names written down on my sheet here. Um, I think LeBron obviously is the third one you have to consider, mm-hmm. but his his journey is not complete yet, so it's a bit difficult. Uh, Kevin, I'll get you in here in a minute, just real quick on the on the stats. I just want to throw them out there so people know. Kobe, of course, 
is the points guy. 32,748 career points on a 450 field goal percentage all time. Uh, 6,863 rebounds, 6,176 assists. Compared to Tim Duncan's less points, 26,168. Less assists, 4,123. But the rebounds aren't even close. 14,822, and as you mentioned, <laughs> I uh, mentioned in the championship, uh, just for the record, LeBron, 25,410 points. I think at the end of the day, he will have more than, than Kobe and more than anyone else. And he may end up being maybe the best all time by the time this is all said and done. Um, Kevin, what are your thoughts on this? I'm I'm a little bit surprised with Tim Duncan uh, because of the fact that you don't hear about Tim Duncan as much as a Kobe Bryant or as a LeBron. Tim Duncan in a very small market compared to in L.A. or in Miami. Okay, Cleveland is small, but all the projectors and the camera are on LeBron no matter where he is. But Tim Duncan in Sacramento, yeah, in San Antonio, sorry. I, I keep confusing all those ones. <laughs> Duncan, I used to all the time. Duncan with the Spurs. <laughs> so that way I'm going to have it, right? Duncan with the Spurs was able to create like a, a dynasty in a low profile, under the radar, no controversy, no drama, a team-oriented type of philosophy that doesn't get the cameras, doesn't get the highlights, doesn't get the headlines as a Kobe Bryant did for the right and the wrong reason throughout his career. So for that reason, Duncan is not our, my first choice because he's not the word that pops out of my head when I first think about the greatest of all time or the greatest of this generation. There's some intangibles in there and you have to be a little larger than life. So for me, Kobe and maybe LeBron eventually have that little it factor that uh, maybe Tim Duncan is lacking. Yeah, that, that brings up an interesting conversation. The NBA is a league that is largely star-driven, um, and Tim Duncan is a star. There's no doubt about it. He plays in San Antonio, which is a, a, an amazing program, as we've just said already. But at the same time, have they driven the sport forward in the way that they could have, in the fullest that they could have? Whereas Kobe, as you said, is bigger than life in a league that sort of likes its stars. Is that important? Should we be considering that sort of star factor when we're trying to rank players, or should we just be entirely focused – as purist on the game itself, Ben? It depends. Um, like, there's two discussions here. Like, who is the most transcendent players? Who, who was the best player? Both are two dis- difficult um, discussions because it's, dif- it's, it's hard to compare a shooting guard and a power forward. And, it's co- of course, Kobe had the biggest impact on, um, on the NBA. That's unequivocal i mean i don't think tim duncan was even looking uh to get an impact but the game is changing at a rapid pace and the spurs might have something to do with that um with uh, ball movement with uh, uh, clever spacing and tim duncan moved from one era to another um and see like seamlessly made the transition kobe uh, has always been kobe has adapted throughout his career too. Um, like, like if we if we compare basically, um, if we compare basically um, legacies, of course, like the legacy of Kobe is going to be bigger culturally speaking. Yeah, uh, you you mentioned the, the the difference in the changes in style in a way, and I mean, in many ways, I talked off the talk about top how it's hard to compare between generations. But even within the careers of Duncan and Kobe, Duncan's nineteen years, Kobe twenty in the league, there's been a lot of changes, as you say, and we're going to get into a little conversation about the team that most epitomizes that in a minute. Golden State, mm-hmm. I think, is the the new way to play. Uh, let's let's wrap this conversation up though with a little bit of talk about LeBron. 
and how he compares to them and, and whether or not he is a different type of player even. Is he a, a representative of the generation that sort of followed them a little bit more? Yes, because uh, he's a very uh, contemporary kind of icon. He's very self-aware. He is obsessed with winning, yes, but he's more, even more obsessed with being great, with leaving a great legacy behind. So I would not be surprised that LeBron leaves a bigger memory than all these guys because everybody wants to be great. Everybody wants to leave a big legacy, and LeBron is self-consciously doing it. Does that make sense? Everybody yeah. wants to be like Mike. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mike, Michael Jordan wanted to win. He was obsessed with winning. He was like a compulsively competitive guy. Uh, LeBron wants to be uh, an icon. He wants to be. He wants to be seen as the best basketball player of all time, mm-hmm. which is in a conversation. Yeah, that's a difference. One of them wanted to win, and one of them wanted to be the other guy. So yeah. Exactly. Uh, Le- LeBron did take his uh, talents to to South Beach famously and and won a couple <laughs> titles down there. Um, I mean I, that's all ultimately. I guess the likability factor plays into these conversations all the time too. People, LeBron was likable until that time, and then he did that little his, stunt. His heel turn. Yes, his exactly. NWO moment. Cray, <laughs> I think he regrets that a little bit now. But at any rate, um, let's go back to Kobe because he is the the man of the hour, so to speak. Uh, well, he was he was the man of a past hour, as we saw this past week in the the game after the announcement in Philadelphia, his homecoming, uh, where he ends. What was a pretty pitiful streak by the 76ers, who are maybe the worst professional team in any sport I've seen in a long time. Um, two questions on this. So ben, we'll start with you in terms of, of Kobe. Uh, did he stick around a little too long? Is that going to hurt his legacy? Uh, I don't know yet because right now it's really bad. Uh, a lot of pundits call this a shit show, basically. They're, they're making a farewell tour for Kobe. Um, Byron Scott is down with the idea of having him shoot 25 shots, 30 shots a game and make it, making maybe uh, 28, 25, 28% of them every game. I think it was 7 out of 30 that, when he played Philly. Wow. It, was, it was silly. He, I, he was like, his body gave in a long time ago and right now it's a bit of a travesty what's going on with the Lakers. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I, I got to say I enjoy it a little bit because before I was a Raptors <laughs> fan, I was a Celtics fan. So it's <laughs> the Lakers have never really been <laughs> been my gig. But uh, Kevin, um, let's talk about the 76ers now and talk about what the 76ers <coughs> are doing in terms of the tanking and in a general sense. This is the new thing in sports right now that you have to be crappy. You have to be terrible before you can get good and that that's the only way to become excellent is to be terrible. Is that good for sport, Kevin? Uh, for sport, no, not necessarily. And uh, you would think it would work because 76ers have been working on it for almost a decade now. And they, outside of one or two good performing seasons, they've been struggling. Uh, they, they never really... I had the chance to uh, the post Iverson era to have a good team consistently on the on the court, and now they're just tanking, probably for Simmons, uh, the the most touted prospect coming out of college in the last couple of years. Everybody wants him out of LSU. Everybody's going to try to tank, and all the good teams want to be bad. It's like the year where there's a good uh, draft possibility. So Philly wants to do it, uh, but like Ben said on the last Hydro Radio, which 
if you haven't listened to it, go right and listen to it right now. Uh, tanking for one player is not necessarily guarantee you the actual player itself because you can finish second with second draft pick or anything. So I don't think it's a good thing to do because you alienate your fan base, you alienate support, you become the laughing stock of the league because uh, media will hyper-focus on your losing streak because it's a good talking topic. So all those things combined makes for you become a laughing stop. You become the goat of the league, and that cannot be good for your fan base going forward. It, well, and the NBA might just freeze the envelope anyway in the end. So, yeah, uh, exactly. It might be like a, <laughs> and the Clippers. Uh, no, and the Lakers get Simmons to uh, prepare the post-Kobe era. Who knows? Or the Celtics. Uh, they have Brooklyn's pick this year. There you go. Oh, dear. <laughs> and that, either or would work well in the NBA's mind as well. Have you ever seen the famous video back of the, uh, the original frozen envelope? It does look suspicious at any rate. <laughs> Oh, um, <laughs> David Stern. David Stern was uh, notorious for being uh, suspicious with this stuff. Yeah, and you never know. <laughs> you, you never know. I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've covered uh, match fixing, so it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me. Anything wouldn't surprise me nowadays in the world of sports. Um, yeah, Ben, I'll just have you ask the same question of you uh, that that I asked of Kevin in terms of the overall tanking. Like, does that? Uh, is there a way around this? Is there a solution to this that that both sort of speaks to the the need to bring up the bottom in North American sports and having some positive sporting like authenticness out there? The 76ers are definitely feeding the discussion. It's the first time um, they have been that a sports team, to my knowledge, has been doing something so systematically. Um, since Sam Hinkie took over in 2013, he has been tearing the team down and trading everything for draft picks. Uh, Adam Silver proposed a reform to the lottery in order to even the odds uh, last year, and the owners voted no. Uh, apparently, Philly and Oklahoma City really lobbied very hard for to get enough owners to block the motion, but uh, they voted. They voted no, so it's going to keep going. It's going to hurt. It, it's going to hurt the league, especially if their rebuilding plan is successful, because other teams are going to put themselves through it. Uh, I'm, but if it keeps going on, I'm pretty sure the NBA is going to step in at some point. Yeah, the, what I favor actually is uh, look. First off, full disclosure, and I, mm. I, I've said this many places. I hate parody. I think parody is the worst thing to happen to sports. Excellence is what makes people love sports, what attracts people to sports. I agree. I grew up watching hockey in the 80s. The Oilers were – I hated them, but my God, were they good to watch. Um, the Lakers, I mentioned them already. I hate the Lakers from back in those days because those battles was what made the NBA. I, I, this idea of parody, uh, I just don't like it, but at any rate – so let's talk about excellence. This is a great segue. Last night in, in Canada, in, in Toronto, the Golden State made its appearance. Uh, it was, yeah, what a game. It was, tickets oh, my God. Golden. It was insane. It was so good. $200 tickets on the off-market, too, last night to get in for the cheapest seats. So everyone was going into town. I mean, the Raptors are a hot ticket anyway, but at the same time, when when a team like Golden State comes in, the tickets are off the charts. And speaking of what we just talked about, they're even more expensive for Monday night's game against the Lakers. Uh, that game is one that I would not want to go to because the Laker fanboys will be out in full force. But at any rate, <laughs> um, Golden State 
are maybe a perfect sports team. Forget basketball. They're maybe a perfect sports team right now. And and Curry, the way he shoots that basketball is just, it's divine. I played the sport growing up. I was a shooter growing up. So you just watch him and you just shake your head. I joked last night on Twitter that they need a separate three-point line just for him to make it fair. <laughs> Do feedback. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And last night watching that game, the Raptors were playing out of their heads in the second half. But oh you my knew. God, yeah. You knew that they weren't going to win that game. You just knew. Like, that. this team is so good. Ben, how, how good are they? Like, how can they match the late eight or late 90s Bulls in terms of their, their overall wins? It's a possibility. Like, they are historically good right now. I don't remember since the Bulls, a team that has been playing with so much cohesion. And the way they have been playing is is just completely new it is the evolution of this what do we call the small ball something that started with mike d'antoni and the Suns in the uh 2000s that evolved with the spurs and now uh since the uh, golden state warrior hires steve kerr he his playbook is just revolutionary he mixes small ball uh, triangle offense uh, is uh, other teams just don't know how to catch up and when you have a guy like Stephen Curry doing things that no point guards have ever done before is literally the Buzz Lightyear of point guards I mean I don't I don't even understand how his floater works like he throws his floaters with both hands and makes I think 70% of them when you have all these variables in place the limit is not defined yet to how good they could be. Kevin, uh, how fun is it to watch a team like Golden State? I know that uh, that you watched that game yesterday. Uh, just how compelling is it to, to watch an excellent team like that? The positivity in that team, the togetherness, the, the cohesion, the unity, and the star power is divided. Yes, Curry is the big star of not just the team, but the league right now. But you don't get that bad ego or that look at me. You get that look, I'm going to pass the ball as much as I'm going to shoot. Why? Because the shot itself, the best shot possible, is bigger than all of us. And let's try to take that shot. Let's get in position for that shot. And let's drain it. That's what we're seeing with Golden State. No matter where they are on the court, they have that aura of invincibility, that confidence in basketball term. You can even say swagger because they go down for... They go, they're down by 10 points. They're not even worried. They're just going to slowly get back into the game and just win it at the end because they know percentage-wise no other team can keep up with them throughout four quarters with the amount of shot they're going to drain and they're systematically getting the best shot off. So uh, when you, it's almost analytics driven this team forward and it's fun to see the, the analytics trend across the different sports over the last decade really influence uh, the game on the the playing surface. On this case, it's the court. And, and it's fun to see how a team like Golden State, now the biggest market, they did it with the, not the right way, but did it the proper way for their market and their wallet, building through uh, the draft picks, development. And uh, development is a lot, very important in the league where now they have that development league. But you go back a couple years ago, it, there was a big gap between college and NBA. So uh, it's very interesting, Golden State, right now. Well, what is it with Oakland at analytics, eh? Anyway. Exactly, right? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think it's, it has a... I don't think it's a coincidence, right? I, I think literally Golden State took a page out of Oakland of uh, the Athletics playbook uh, a couple decades ago. 
Yeah. And I'm a big math guy, as anyone knows. Well, I don't know. My math <laughs> teachers, my math teachers back in the day might disagree, but uh, in terms of the modern sports stuff, um, that's uh, this is Canadian show, obviously. So that's let's turn a little attention to the uh, to the Toronto team anyway. I don't know if it's Canada's team, but it's certainly Toronto's team. Um, <laughs> are they what are your thoughts, Ben, on the Raptors? They're infuriatingly inconsistent from my position here. Um, I've been a day one Raptors fan, so I, I'm a little more emotional about them than I am logical at times, and they certainly drive me up the wall. But uh, what how good is the team? Are they good enough to make a run, maybe get around in the playoffs this year, Benoit? I might, I might like blow you guys' pants off, but what I saw yesterday left me really impressed. Like what I saw yesterday is a team that would beat uh, the Cleveland team I've seen on Friday. Um, maybe not in a series, but I could see the Raptors of yesterday, like these guys, these junkyard dogs who just hawked for the ball in half court, and guys like Damari Carroll, who seems to have a very positive. Uh, effect on the locker room, uh, whose attitude seems contagious. I think I think they're really a great defensive open court team that creates a lot of turnovers and that creates a lot of fast break situations. Uh, in the East, they can get really really far if they keep playing like this. Yeah, of course they. Anyone that gets out of the East is running into a juggernaut after that, as we just said. But yeah, uh, most likely. This market, I think, would uh, would hold a parade if they want to want a round. Uh, Kevin, I'll, I'll wrap with this. I, I made a joke about them maybe not being Canada's team, but of course they are. Um, you know, either shoved down the throat or offered for people's viewing pleasure, depending on your perspective in terms of their their TV broadcast. And that makes sense because why would a Canadian broadcaster not show the Canadian team? But at any rate. Um, how are the Raptors in your mind? Like, where do they fit within the overall Canadian sporting landscape? Are Have they made inroads outside of, of the GTA? Yes, but in its own market itself, basketball was able to create over the last two decades its own market. It was one of the first sports to really identify its fan base and market uh, directly to them. If you're looking at the feel, the look, the vibe, the ambiance of the league is very driven, very young. They went to that market. They really took advantage of that uh, teenagers that were uh, falling in love with basketball in the mid-90s because of the Bulls and just went with it, uh, created a video game culture, created a musical environment, a celebrity status with the courtside. All that combined made for basketball to be a very in-sport with the in techie savvy crowd and uh, the Twitters of this world and all that been really driven basketball. So because of those uh, very accomplishment that basketball did, its fan base is very important. Is it similar to mainstream? No, it's its own thing, but it is very popular. It is very big. The Raptors, yes, are popular outside of the GTA, but I would say the league in itself might be bigger than just one club. There's not one day that goes by that I don't see people on the street wearing every single team out there. I see even Pistons and stuff like you would not necessarily anticipate people to be fan of in Montreal, but I do see it. So I would say, yes, the Raptors are important, but here, at least in Montreal and Quebec, the market that I know better, it's the league in itself that is very popular now. Yeah, it, it, I, I will, I'll say this about the Raptors' popularity here in Toronto. Over the last 10 years or so, I, 10 years ago, it would there would have been an argument to there being as many fans of other NBA teams in Toronto as there were Raptor fans. <laughs> That's flipped in the last 10 years as as the generation that grew up knowing only the Raptors 
becomes in their 20s and so on. And if you look at a Raptors crowd now, it's very young. It's very vibrant. It looks like the city too, like in terms of its its uh, diversity, whereas a Leafs crowd, maybe not so much. I, <laughs> I wonder legitimately where the Raptors would rank in terms of the Leafs uh, in Toronto if, if you just look at under 30s. And, and I would think that the fan bases would be very similar in size. And the I, Leafs- would, I would say the Raptors would be higher than the Leafs if you go under 30, Dwayne, without a shadow of a doubt, just because of the success factor. Yeah, yeah. It was, it's all relative. <laughs> yeah, true, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, the Leafs are the Leafs, and maybe we'll talk about them one day in this, although I don't like talking about the Leafs because they bore me. But at any rate... <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's a fascinating discussion where they fit in the mar- marketplace. I mean, the Jays are are there. One of the success of the Jays too, and we're going to talk about the Jays a little briefly after we take a quick break. Is that they really, when they had their down years, what they did really smartly, and what the Leafs have never really done, is they focused on bringing younger people into that stadium. If you look at a Blue Jays crowd now, it's young. It's it's like a club in there. Like it's like vibrant and rowdy and youthful, and it's it's a very uh, place to be. And it's not like the Jays fans are. Group stadium back in the the glory days of the 90s. They really, like I said, they focused on getting the young people in, and that's something the Leafs have really failed at. Uh, Basketball just gravitates towards young people anyways, and I think that that is a big part of it. All right. Uh, On that note, uh, we'll take a little brief break here. We'll come back with a couple bullet points to end the show. The Sports Podcasting Network. And welcome back. We were talking about the Blue Jays a little bit, or at least I was, because that's <laughs> been a, a very large topic of conversation in the city for a while uh, in the break. Uh, it's been a very uh, intriguing offseason um, so far in terms of the Blue Jays becoming the Indians. Uh, and we're not too sure why that is. Uh, it's, not like, it's not like the Indians have won like 10 World Series over the last 20 years. Oh, it's mind-boggling. See, they made the mistake is that they didn't think the Jays were going to run into the playoffs and capture the imagination of a city and, and the country. To, yeah, to everyone. Like, capture the imagination. Like, uh, uh, Donaldson's on the cover of the of the in the game, like the baseball game that's MLB going to be show, yes. Yeah, which in America, too. So, uh, obviously, the Jays have made an influence. But uh, they didn't anticipate that. So, they went and, you know, Rogers being Rogers and sort of brain-dead and blind and you know, myopic to the market, just went out and hired the Shapiro, uh, which he pronounces his name wrong, I'd just like to say, um, without really thinking about what the long-term consequences are. And here we are. Anyway, the question I have, and I'll start with you, Ben, and I sort of asked you this off air. I know you're not the biggest baseball guy, so we're not going to ask you to break down the J-Hap signing or something like that. Um, do we over-focus on the management side, does that become like an obsession almost in this fantasy sports world? Should we are we like overthinking things when we get so caught up in who the GMs are? I don't think so. I think we're underthinking uh, management. Name me one successful transcendent um, legacy, a sports legacy that did not start in the upper floor. Uh, I'll just give you a very easy example: the Habs were on the treadmill for about 15, 20 or so years until Marc Bergevin came in. It all started with Bergevin uh, turning turning tables around, uh, getting the team bigger and uh, stronger, and uh, the image uh, of the Chicago Blackhawks, which he was working for. Uh, same thing in basketball. The Warriors started changing, started drafting right, started being a destination when uh, Bob Myers came in. In 2009, I think, uh, Bob Myers drafted Steph Curry and 
Clay Thompson and Draymond Green. No, I think it's totally a valid concern to have the best possible GM out there. Kevin, let's let's take it a step even above the GM and, and talk about ownership groups. Um, a hot topic of conversation here in making losing seem easy. Toronto, if you follow what I just did there. Um, ownership, there's this always this debate between huge corporate ownership, which always has the money. And when we talked about MLSE, I mentioned, I sort of make a joke about them a second ago. They have the money. They spend the money too. It's not a spending issue with MLSE. There's something else wrong. Has been for years. There's obviously something wrong. Otherwise, they'd be more successful. Is it that simple? Is it just like this corporate kind of indifference that or that sort of fails at the when, when you don't have like a, a passionate individual owner involved? Like, is that too simple to, to think that way, Kevin? I don't think it's too simple. No, I think there's a correlation. If you're looking at the, the famous wins or if you're looking at the NFL, the way it's run, the, the, the single owner or the, the image of the owner with the ego trying to drive the club forward, at least there's somebody driving the club forward. Uh, when it's a corporate issue, when it's a corporate ownership, a corporate like corporate in itself, nobody feels involved because it's such a group. It's such a – nobody's decision. Nobody feels intent. Uh, uh, what's I, I'm looking for my word, but it doesn't matter. Nobody feels like it's their responsibility. Nobody is responsible when it fails because it's diluted toward the CEOs or the CEOs or the, the board or whatever. So that in itself makes for a less passionate involvement as an owner compared to a Joey Saputo with the Montreal Impact, a uh, Jerry Jones with the Dallas. Those owners have direct impact with the team because – they care about the result, and they want maybe the result before the rest. And maybe that's the issue. Uh, maybe you're the reason why you own a club is the reason between if you win or you make money. If it's just there to make money and your end goal is to make money, some part along the way of decision-making and putting those action plan into reality as a corporation, there's going to be a disconnection. There's going to be a errors here and there and at the end of the day you're going to make money yes but winning is not going to be the result if your goal is to win and not necessarily to make money you're going to take decision to win and eventually it's going to be more streamlined to the result of winning i think that's the biggest difference between a winning mentality and a making money reality i think that i've been reading a book lately it's a bit older it's called leaf's abomination <laughs> uh, like it's a it's a play on word leaf's nation um and it really breaks down what the issues were with the MLSC. It was written just as Brian Burke was being hired. So we're looking at 2007, 8, around there. Um, they really point something out. and it was, It's eye-opening to me in terms of the, what, you, Kevin, you just sort of said, this money-making idea thing. And it's not so much that it's greed that drives it. And I think a lot of people, no, a lot exactly. of fans. It's a corporation. It's itself. Yeah, they need to make money. Like when the teacher's pension plan owned the lease or the majority owner of MLSC, it, they were mandated to drive their profits to you know have a 10% growth every year like that was just the mandate they weren't allowed to think any other way so exactly. what that how that manifest itself wasn't like we're going to cut spending on salaries it was we're not going to allow ourselves to lose to the point that we can get the players that we are because we need the playoff gates so the Leafs back then were mediocre they weren't 
horrible like they are now. They were mediocre in the sense that they were able to to sort of get like that seventh, sixth seed every year. They'd get a round of the playoffs. Maybe they'd upset once in a while and get to the second round. Each game at the, at the ACC is making, you know, the teacher's pensions plan, $2 million profit. And that was what was driving them forward, that motivation. Uh, there's in the book, they talk about how management went to the ownership and said, look, we need to, we need to strip our assets and we need to get into a higher position in the draft because the salary cap's coming in and we can't spend our way out of trouble once that cap comes in. And that's exactly what happened to the Leafs. They relied too much on their money and spent too much to get out and then they just couldn't get there. So it, it's an interesting sort of conversation. And to bring this back to the Blue Jays, I don't no, know how the hell we got with... Just a quick segue, Dwayne. If you go back to the Blue Jays, Alex Antopoulos did spend a lot of money over the last two years, especially last year, did drain a little bit of prospect pool because he needed to to make that splash that he did make and probably make his reputation and probably going to get a bigger, higher profile job eventually in the league or something because of those moves. And he knew he was good. He knew the road the Jays were on because the Jays are not necessarily like MLSC but in a way it's Rogers Corporation owning the Jays is not Ted Rogers anymore because Ted Rogers has passed away and now the corporation that took over behind him has not the same vision for the Blue Jays as Rogers did so when you combine all those things I think the same thing is going on with the Jays as might be going on with MLSC in a way where the making money aspect is more important than winning the corporation at the end of the day the people in the board want to see the shares go higher. That's the end goal when the public company is the owner of a team. Now with the Rogers, because of Anthopolis, was, he was actually, if you read between the lines, if you are aware of what's going on behind the scenes, uh, the couple of days after the elimination and when it was announced it was not going to be back, in the review session of his performances in the board meetings, he was actually... His hand was slapped because of certain trades and because the amount of money he spent and because of where he put the Jay in a bad situation because they were the darlings now and they put them in a bad situation that if they don't do the right move, people are going to be angry about them because they're going to know that you're not going out there to win. So uh, those things combined explain why Antopolis decided to go somewhere else and that probably explains where the Jays are going. Yeah, well, I mean, they want to win because winning, win, you know, even on a pure financial level, they they want to win. A World Series title would make a crap ton of money. But uh, at any rate, um, Ben, well, that's that's uh, end with this. I, as I said, yeah, I know you're not a day to day follower of baseball, but uh, I am curious from a perspective of someone who isn't a day to day follower of baseball, what how the Jays' run this year was perceived. You aren't in Toronto. You're not a baseball fan per se. How were you perceiving that run? Was it something that grabbed your attention at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was hard not to. Uh, it was hard not to notice. There was uh, there was people on my social media feeds all the time posting about uh, coming together and uh, so stuff like that. Posting with their gears, uh, with, with their um, um, uh, Blue Jays gears, and making play play by plays of the playoff games. Uh, I mean, it's great if they're. Um, if they made the playoffs, uh, I think they did it the right way. I think in the, we used to follow baseball back in the days of the Expos. I mean, they make their moves at the uh, trade deadline. They got the proper, um, they got the proper personnel. I mean, uh, it was, it was, they, they, it doesn't strike to me. It doesn't strike me as they did. They did it wrong. You know? Yeah. 
Um, I think there's interesting too, Kevin. I'll I'll, I'll ask you this: uh, the the Montreal Toronto sports rivalry, which has been downgraded in recent years because of Toronto's ineptness. But, <laughs> however, in a general way, I, I never found it as strong on the baseball side, and I think that's because they played in the NL and the AL, so that there were baseball fans, Canadian baseball fans, that cheered for both of those teams. Yeah. Um, I I would count myself among them. That I I used to go to. Well, I went to more Expo games before I was 20 than I went to Blue Jays games because I lived in eastern Ontario. It quickly switched after that when I moved to Toronto, obviously. But but uh, certainly I was a fan of both teams. Uh, where, where do the Blue Jays rank within sports fans in, in Montreal? Do, do you think that that's the one Toronto team they make an exception for, Kevin? Yes, because there's no direct competition with a Montreal one. Even when – because for years, they're not even playing against each other. Never, ever. And then eventually there was the interleague and it was more of a friendly feel to the games than actual competition. It was like two friends meeting after a long time just playing a friendly game of ball. And they had that, uh, that, that aspect. I've been to a um, Expos and Blue Jays game both at the Sky Dome and at the Olympic Stadium. And it has that same feel of uh, we're friends just playing together. The outcome is not necessarily important, but we're here to promote baseball in our, in our country. So it, it had that vibe. Now that Montreal doesn't have the Expos since 2000, and five where uh, the Blue Jays have maybe filled the void over the last couple of years. But before that, before Anthopolis, there was no effort made by the Blue Jays itself, and they didn't have to, to gain a market where they could make a little profit or revenue from. Now they did. When Anthopolis took over, he was important for him to sign maybe one player, but not just for the, the Quebec or Montreal reason, Russell Martin, but because for performances reason too, and the star factor. But the fact that he had him, he used him correctly, uh, put him in the right TV shows in the Quebec market, put him at the right events and the, the preseason games now in the big stadium, all those things created a new buzz. And in the playoff this year, or, or in the lead up to the playoff, I'll say the best example, like I've said on the show with you doing earlier, when you're on, we were 11 people in Myrtle Beach on a vacation. And what we're all doing was not going out of nightclub. We watched the Blue Jays all together. It's all people from Montreal. So that tells you how important the Blue Jays were in the last run they had. Would the Expos 2.0 work, Benoit? Probably, uh, I don't think it would work. Uh, I don't think it would work if they were in the Olympic Stadium still. Uh, that ship has sailed. That that experiment has been uh, done. Uh, I think there's an interest for baseball in Montreal. I think it's still a sport that that kids play uh, in the summer and that is very perceived as very uh, safe by the parents. I mean, I don't think you're. No parents are going to think their kids are a bum for playing uh, baseball. So, yeah, I think they need a new stadium like they did before, but sure. The Olympic Stadium, the, the charms of Olympic Stadium are, um, you know, I, I was up there on, on the very top deck uh, at the CCL final wandering around a little bit before the pregame. And uh, I swear to God, I found some uh, newspapers from 1976 still up there. So it's <laughs> it's a charming little place. <laughs> it's, it's got its it's got its own unique. 70s charm to it um and you had a smoking section inside until 2010 so uh, there you go all right uh briefly uh kevin i'm gonna lean on you a little bit more for this one we thought we'd end with a little mma talk um i'll start with you benoit just in a general sense this is a sport that seemed to be on the rise uh that seemed unstoppable it seemed like the ceiling was was never going to hit about up till about five years ago and then it sort of just evened out um is mma at its maximum uh, popularity right now, or can it re refine itself again? It's a good question because basically what they did is that they uh, saturated their 
market. They are doing too many shows for the uh, amount of fighters they had. They could just cannot keep up. Um, they uh, they put fighters that nobody ever heard of in the finals of their show. Uh, they, I mean, I don't care if this guy from Brazil and this guy from Sweden are fighting each other on fuel. I'm not going to watch it because I don't care who these guys are. Uh, <laughs> you, the UFC is very narrative-driven, and they have lost these, this aspect in uh, the last few years. And one of their biggest attempts to reclaim it is to Conor McGregor and Jose Aldo. And because there's so much, there has been so much strain on Jose Aldo all these years to defend his title over and over again, uh, it, that narrative has failed due to injuries uh, several times. But it's supposedly, it's let's cross our fingers and knock on wood, it's going to happen next week. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're getting close. Uh, six days away. And what interests me in that fight is it's been a long time in the making. We've seen Conor McGregor being um, basically propelled to the to the main stage of the UFC with his talking factor, with his looking factor, how he presents himself, the three-piece suit, the guy from Dublin who's larger than life, the guy who can talk. He's basically a pro wrestling character put in a mixed martial art environment, and it's working for him. And basically, you, how you mentioned it, uh, Ben, the narrative, that's what drove big, big fight. And uh, Ronda Rossi versus Holy Home was a big fight because they were re able to hype the, the challenger so that it would be people would actually doesn't don't know who won and actually they maybe didn't hype it up enough where Holly Holm shocked the world and it was amazing to see uh, Holly Holm beat Ronda Rousey but going back to uh, Aldo and McGregor Aldo is the type of champion that he's so good so rounded but not necessarily the most marketable champion he doesn't speak English he doesn't have that great charisma he's a fighter's fighter he's technical he's All that you want to say about a Brazilian fighter, he is. But he's not necessarily the most popular fighter. Because of that reason, McGregor would be a very good champion because he's popular. So all those reasons makes for a very popular fight next Saturday. But because of the on and off, of the, because of the Aldo injuries and the, the fight and the press conferences and the arguments between the two, uh, nobody actually thought the fight's going to happen. So we're six days away and the hype hasn't really restarted again. If you look at the the downfall of boxing, um, I think that it, it can be directly traced to the lack of characters, uh, particularly in the heavyweight division, right? I mean, you know, who are the most famous boxers of all time? The Mike Tysons, the Muhammad Ali's, right? These are guys that were bigger than life, whether for good or bad in terms of some of Tyson's antics mm -hmm. back in the day. But certainly that did drive the sport. And now, you know, can you name more than two or three heavyweights if you're not a hardcore boxing fan? Probably not. No, um, like is, a Klitschko lost yesterday, uh, last weekend. Last week, yeah, I think. Yeah, against Tyson Fury. Oh, for sure, it's the best boxer name ever, Tyson Fury. But uh, outside of that, I never heard about the guy, and he beat a Klitschko. That tells you all you need to know about the heavyweight division. Yeah. The only like, the only thing I knew about Tyson Fury is that there was, a, before that fight, there was a vine of him punching himself. Upper, <laughs> well, there you upper, go. Upper, uppercutting himself, like going around on the internet. Well, that's, that's interesting. Anyway, um... <laughs> To bring that back to MMA to, to end it, I mean, is that the problem right now in terms of the, the popular? Like GSP, when he was at his peak, I think that's when MMA was at its peak. Did they need another guy like that to emerge and be sort of bigger than the sport? 
I think uh, they do, but I think it's going to be hard because of the amount of product out there. Nothing feels special when you're exposed to it through three, four times a month. Now you need to, to scale back. And you're looking at Bellator, what they're doing now and getting good rating is, is going back two decades from now and getting old fighters, getting old names, fighting each other. And people care about it because it's name that they can relate to. I think the UFC has to scale back, make some names and get those names to make new stars and to uh, regain that popularity they once had. Anything to add to that, Benoit? Uh, yeah, they definitely have to uh, retool their roster and think marketability. I always tell everyone that the UFC has made his name by being by borrowing their marketing approach, 50% for boxing and 50% for pro wrestling. Uh, they have been drifting away from that because they have to keep up with the demand but yeah i agree like there's a there's a character there's a narrative thing that they need to retool all right on that note um i i would add my two and i agree with what you're saying and i look i when i've watched mma in the past and it's not like i'm completely against the sport i like combat sports i just have never really gravitated to that one in the same way that I had the boxing at certain times in my past. But when I have watched, it's been because there's been huge names. Um, I watched GSP fights back in the day. I went out to, to bars to, to be around people. And obviously I'm in Canada. So the, he was a massive, massive star here as well. So certainly that is something that is lacking now. And I have no, like, I'm not never going to watch an MMA pay-per-view unless I've heard of the, heard of the fighter. And I haven't heard a lot of fighters anymore. And that's my thought on the matter. All right, on that note, guys, uh, that would be episode two of the SPN Roundtable. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll see you next time. If you want to reach us, sportspodcastingnetwork at gmail.com.